Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. So it's good to see everyone um, this morning and um, it's good to be seen by you. It's a pleasure to be um, jumping into John chapter one and um, very grateful for the overview that Pastor Rob gave um, last week. If I sound a bit congested, I'm just getting over the man flu. And so, um, yeah, you can expect me to keel over or anything <laughs> at any given moment. Um, it's wonderful to see what God's doing among us. The fact that our wonderful Savior is actively at work in the lives of his people is a tremendous testimony um, that we get to rejoice in. And um, it does relate to um, just where we're going today as we look at John chapter 1 and the first few verses. Um, People have so many different conceptions of God, and we'll talk about some of the historic views that people have held of God. But, you know, you hear people talk about God in terms of, uh, well, you know, um, the man upstairs, old father time, some even say mother nature, and... um, Uh, an abundance of other catchphrases and figures of speech that are used to refer to God. How we understand God is very important. Um, One of the early church fathers basically said that belief dictates behavior. And our view of God is very important because it impacts on not only how we relate to him, but how we relate to others. And as we get into the Gospel of John, we see John, by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, give revelation to who God is in such a way that he redefines the understandings of the cultures and of the peoples. And he brings clarity because he speaks with the authority of God's Spirit. And I trust that as we wrestle with some of these deep and meaningful truths of Scripture, we will be encouraged. Now, I'm warning you from the outset, before I even pray, like we're going in, we're diving in. and we're, You know, last week, Pastor Rob used the, um, the, uh, the analogy that um, the book of John is shallow enough for a baby to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And it is really that. And it is so much like the awesomeness of our God that he can create a situation like that. But we're going to be dealing with some of the fundamental theological truths. I had to put my teeth in to say that. The fundamental theological truths of the faith. And so if you're coming this morning just with a kind of kickback mentality, just... Just say something that's going to soothe my soul and just encourage me and I can go and get on with my week. I'm going to ask you to stop right there and prepare yourself because we're going to need to give a little consideration to God's word. And it's only right, as Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your your mind, with all your strength. So basically with everything that is in us, we are to love God. It's not sufficient for us to use our minds when we're in academic pursuit or in in pursuit of our career progression, but then think when it comes to the almighty, eternal God, we're just going to lock off at the door, check out, swipe off, and be like, okay, cool, just make me feel good. That's, that's, That's not even just unthinkable, that should be unheard of. And yet so many of us approach our Christian life like that. You know, and so I'm just warning you from the outset, we're going to give some consideration to probably two of the deepest truths of the Christian faith as presented in Scripture. And that is the triune nature of God, also commonly known as the Trinity, whilst also considering, as if that weren't enough, the divinity of Christ. The the divinity of Christ. And so let me pray. And um, 
we'll give some consideration to the text in hand. Father God, we do thank you for your consummate faithfulness. Ultimately, to yourself. Saying that we're familiar with, Lord, you are God all by yourself, and you don't need anybody else. We say this casually, and yet the truth carries much weight. Lord, you owe no one nothing. You are the sovereign, almighty God. Self-existent. Enjoying the intra-Trinitarian love of, of the communion of the Godhead. And yet, Lord, you would even so desire and aspire to bring us into that union, to bring us into that relationship. You're awesome. You're amazing. And we stand in awe of you as we consider your greatness. May we leave here today with just a deeper understanding and insight to who you really are. Not just who we think you are, but who you really are as you have revealed yourself through the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us today, Lord, I pray. In your name and for your glory. Amen. We're looking at John chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 to 18. I'll be reading from the ESV. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Praise God. Now, this section of the Gospel of John is known as the prologue. Um, One commentator said, I dare not call it the preface or preface as if it were something that could be skipped over. As a prologue, it contains all of the essential nutrients of the rest of the book. The rest of the the Gospel of John is, in essence, summarized in these verses here. And with that, we recognize that as John, as he is set out in his purpose statement in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, 
where he has said, I have written this that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in believing that you might have life. This is his purpose. That we would appreciate that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We see John begin to highlight some themes here which get unpacked throughout the rest of the book. So we see the theme of light. We see the theme of life. And these are key words to to look out for as you read through the gospel, as I would hope that you would do during the course of our study. We see also the theme of belief. Not belief in the sense of a mental recognition, a mere mental acknowledgement, but a believing in as one who trusts. I could say to you, do you believe the brakes on your car? And you'd be like, well, that's a bit of a funny way to, to put that. I believe that my car has brakes. Oh, do you believe that they work? Well, yes, I believe that the brakes work. Now, if you were to never use those brakes for fear of them failing, would you truly believe that those brakes work? See, truly believing in those brakes is to put your trust in them. And obviously, as in the case with car brakes, you're literally entrusting your life to the faithful operation of these things. And so when John talks about belief, he doesn't talk about belief merely in the sense of, do you agree with, do you understand, do you acknowledge? But it's, do you trust in? And so, this is one of the the key phrases. In fact, that phrase believe is used 97 times throughout the gospel and so we see immediately that there is a challenge to all of us what do we really believe this is what the gospel is really challenging us concerning what do we really believe what do you really believe you say you believe in God well you do well And yet even the demons believe and tremble, says the scripture. So to say that I believe in God, as in I recognize or acknowledge his existence, is only part of the picture. It's an incomplete picture if that's all it is. And so in this, we are being challenged. What do we truly believe Other themes, love. John is known as the apostle of love. The term is used 57 times in the gospel. And a very um, pervasive theme right throughout. Um, Truth and witness are also key themes. So as we approach the gospel... Keep these key words in mind and um, do some of your own investigating as we go through as to what these key themes actually mean to you. Now, chapter 1, verse 1. John minces no words, he pulls no punches. He goes straight for the juggler, dives in at the deep end, and all of us non-swimmers are forced to go with him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John starts his gospel 
at the beginning. Just as the very Bible itself starts at the beginning. Now, as the readers heard this phrase, in the beginning, immediately it would have rung in their ears. It's a bit like um, we have certain sayings um, in our culture. And you only need to hear the beginning of it for the rest of it to just ring in your ears. Um, all right, so look, let me see. If I were to say Heidi High, see, I'm showing my age because I know the younger ones are not going to get that. But I thought I would just kind of, you know, Heidi High, and those that know say Hody Ho. Yeah? It's just one of those phrases, even as annoying as it is. Um, okay. Nice to see you. To see you, the old Brucey, eh? Can't dead. Still guys strong. Praise God. Nice to see you, to see you nice. How about this one? Bit more niche. It's been a long time. <laughs> All right, then. Flashbacks in the club. P. Diddy. <laughs> See, phrases that we're f- familiar with that resonate in our minds, even in an incomplete form, our minds are already completing them. And so we see a phrase like, in the beginning, and even for those of us who are vaguely familiar with the Bible, we're going to have a flashback to Genesis 1, verse 1. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Now, we understand that that is not the end of Genesis 1, verse 1. But John is intentional in drawing the reader back to the beginning of the book. Back to the beginning of the Bible. To the very starting place of not just God's word, but of the human experience. But he goes beyond that. John doesn't just take us back to the beginning of time, the beginning of humanity. He doesn't just take us back to the the beginning of that which is. But he takes us to the, the point when all there was, was God. Now, we're finite beings. We only understand things to have a beginning and an end because that is the nature that we are born of and all that is around us, that's all that we see. Things have a beginning, things have an an end. And yet this is not true for God. In the beginning, at the beginning of the story of all that exists as we know it, God existed. God was there at the beginning before anything else existed. All that is created, all that God made, was made by the God who was there before he made it. (laughs) I'm not trying to make it sound deep, but... The reality is that we can't fathom it. Because it then automatically begs the question, so when was God's beginning? We'd be there talking to people on the street about the Lord. I've got a question for you, they say. Where where did God come from? Asking the wrong question. Because God can only be and is demonstrated to be self-existent. Self-existent. In that God has no beginning, he has no end, he is. He is, and always is, and has always been is. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to try and get too philosophical because I feel that I might keel over. This is 
literally, this is stuff that sends people into institutions when you actually try and fathom it too hard. The fact that God existed before all things, that he is self-existent, that he has no beginning and has no end. It's just a matter of fact that we have to accept. And the reality is this. It causes our hearts to feel comforted. It causes our hearts to be fulfilled. Because any other view of God is insufficient. Any other view of God would say that he's not really God. So, if God had a beginning, who instigated his beginning? What instigated his beginning? Would that not therefore make him inferior to the one who instigated him? Then wouldn't that thing be God? Or that person, or whatever that was, wouldn't that be God and not God? We would have no confidence. Oh, God has not a beginning, so therefore surely he has an end, right? And I'm supposed to put my, my trust and, and my eternal welfare in his hands only to know that he's going to finish at some point? What kind of God is that? How can I truly trust? I remember um, early 90s and there was this song that was like, it was quite popular. It actually kind of blew up a bit on the mainstream as well, gospel song. And it was by a group called The Sounds of Blackness. And you know they were a group of their time, right? The Sounds of Blackness. Blackness, you know. <laughs> and it was, that, it was that era, that public enemy, that kind of De La Soul, Daisy era. It was that kind of when black people were finding their identity with a new kind of expression. And um, The Sounds of Blackness had this tune. And the tune sweet me and infuriated me all at the same time. Everything is going to be all right. All right, sing along crew. Yeah? <laughs> Everything is going to be all right. And I remember that tune and I remember thinking, this tune is so sweet. And it really did encourage my soul. But then I wrestled with the tune and I'm like, how can you be telling everyone that everything is going to be all right? Everything is going to be all right. Mm. I don't know if that's, that's universally true, you know. So I started nitpicking, in it, Like a proper Pharisee. <clears throat> um, but fundamentally, if God has an end, no one could ever sing that song. No one could ever sing that song. Delete that from your iPod. Straight out of your iTunes. Off your playlist. Because how would we know that everything is going to be all right? There's no guarantee. Except in the one who is self-existent. Who has no beginning. And has no end. That's my kind of God. Because in him, I know that According to his will and his purpose, everything is going to be all right. And for all who are being conformed to his will and purpose through his son, we can rejoice in the truth that everything is going to be all right. It doesn't matter what you're going through right now. It doesn't matter what you've been going through and what you've experienced. There is a guarantee that in Christ Jesus, everything is going to be all right. Some of you will get that on the way home, as they say. That encourages my soul. Why? Because God is self-existent. Before anything was God. John takes it to another level. Because what he does is, he almost puts an insert into Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Well, John says this. In the beginning, insert, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
Now, that potentially poses a problem. Such that some have even attempted to rewrite the text in order to try and resolve the problem only to create more problems. Now, a question is this. If God is supreme, all-powerful, over all, greater than all, of, of, of authority beyond all, and is God, can there be two gods? Can there be two gods? It's not possible. You can't have two that are supreme in authority, that are supreme in power, because which one of them is truly supreme? And so in this we see John expose a mystery that is revealed in Christ Jesus. When the New Testament speaks about mysteries, and it uses that word mystery or mysterion in the Greek, it's speaking about something which was once concealed, now revealed in Christ. John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. So we understand that the word is speaking of a person. Because verse 2 says, he was. Okay. Now, does this suggest that there are two gods? Some have said that it does. And so if you would pick up what is known as the New World Translation of the Bible, which is the, the, the version that is used by the Jehovah's Witnesses. In their John 1, verse 1, it would say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That single letter... Now, just, just for the record, the New World Translation is a corrupt translation of the Bible, and if you have one, do not use it for anything other than um, recognizing what's wrong. You know that you, you, sometimes you know what's right by understanding what's wrong, and so if you just want a comparative reference to understand what you ought not to be following, then, but, and it has no other purpose other than that. That single letter seeks to change the very identity of God as he has revealed himself. God, throughout history, has revealed himself as one. And so, in Genesis, so actually in Isaiah, I'm going to just jump, there, there are numerous references. Um, first of all, actually, let me go to Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, this is known as the, the Shema of Israel. You want to know about catchphrases and slogans? This is the one for the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's known as monotheism. There is one God. This is further asserted by God himself as he speaks through the prophet Isaiah. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Rhetorical question to which everybody knows the answer is no. There is no rock. I know not any. I love it when the Lord bigs up his chest. Absolutely like, 
Tremendous. Isaiah 45 verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. God makes it clear that there's only one God. And you can read those chapters um, from chapter 40 right through to even 48 and you'll see multiple references to the Lord bragging on his sovereign supremacy. And we all say amen. Uh, Yet in this point of our text, we see John introduce understanding which is a means of clarification it's understanding that actually was always there in the text and yet never really appreciated until stated in this explicit form so john says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god John here exposes the fact that actually God is a diverse or compound unity. A diverse or compound unity. That there is one being who is God existing eternally in three persons. And so here we see the, the clarification of the second person, known as, here, the Word. So the pre-incarnate reference to the Son of God is the Word. And the Word was with God, speaking of the second person, Christ, being with God the Father. And yet the word was God, as in equal, as in coexisting, co-authoritative, the same as, of the same substance. Now, this is a mystery. And one that we are careful to handle um, particularly. And yet it is a matter of fact that there is one God eternally existing in three persons. And in this we understand the diverse or compound nature. The fact that it's, it's a bit like to say... And let me just highlight, any illustration that a person uses for the Trinity is, it's, they say, it, they stand on two legs. If you push them too far, the illustration will fall over. And so we're limited in our language to begin to even try and convey the concept. And yet still, God has revealed himself and we receive that revelation. Amen. How can the term God be used of one who is supreme and yet more than one? We see from the very beginning in Genesis 1 verse 1 that this truth was communicated. In the beginning God, in the Hebrew Elohim. Elohim is a compound term. It's a, it's a plural, it's a single unit of plural parts. Elohim. Now, if I was to say to you, um, okay, bananas. Some people love them. Great source of carbohydrate, protein, energy. Some people don't fancy them at all. But if I was to send you out to buy a bunch of bananas, 
would I expect you to come back with one banana or multiple? Multiple, standard. Now, I've sent you out to buy a bunch. I only want one bunch. And yet, my expectation is that you're going to return with several bananas. Because we understand bunch to be a singular that is made up of parts. If you came back with one, I would be disappointed. I would send you back. (laughs) And so... There is a loose English example of how we we can understand something to be a singular unit, bunch, singular, one, singular. It's a unit, but consisting of compound parts. And so even in the very beginning, God has revealed himself in this fashion. Elohim. In the... Shema or Shema as we heard it. Again, we see the same statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh, our God, Elohim, is one. And even the term one, Echad in Hebrew, again, is a compound term. It's a compound unit. And so, The triune God had sprinkled evidence of his identity throughout the Old Testament. We see this come to focus in Genesis 1 and verse 26 and 27. And there we see God speak at the point of creation, creating man. And God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us. Hold on, who's God speaking to? The angels? As if the angels were on a level with God. In that they share the image of God. So that man would be made in the image of the angels and God. No, 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 no. God is not speaking to the angels. Some say that God is speaking the plural of majesty. As if the queen were to say, and we will reign ad infinitum. But there are many reasons, and you could look into that, as to why the fundamental picture we get here is the triune Godhead speaking in concert. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so even in his creation of humanity, we see God present a diverse and yet unified picture of two individuals who share in the image of God. And so, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and yet the Word was God. And this has significance to us for a a multitude of reasons. But in this we recognize that God, one, is fulfilled in and of himself. So I remember believing a few different heresies in my life as a Christian. And um, they say confession is good for the soul. Um, And I believe these heresies ignorantly. So um, one of the heresies that I I believed was God created man because he wanted someone to share his love with. And it sounded very reasonable to me at that time in my life as a Christian. 
and it seemed consistent with the love that God has toward man and the love that man is called to love him with. But it's just not true. Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally enjoy love shared one with another. And so they have no need of anything. Hence our saying, God is God all by himself. He don't need nobody else. God doesn't need you to complete him. Now, for some of you, you might feel disappointed by that. But if you think about it hard enough, you should be encouraged. We can barely complete ourselves, right? We can barely complete our spouse. We can barely complete our children or our family. We can't do it. And so if God was reliant on you or me to complete him, then we would have a very vulnerable, neurotic God. But God doesn't rely on any of us to complete him. God is complete in and of himself. And the relationship that he calls us into is one of his grace. He doesn't need us, but he desires relationship with his people. That should provide us with security and with a great deal of encouragement that we are being brought into relationship with the triune God. Now, I use that word triune intentionally as opposed to trinity. Because people say, oh, Trinity is not in the Bible. And we see that the, there are several terms that are, are not in the Bible that are used in, Christian, in the history of the Christian church. Trinity is just a, a transliteration of the Latin word that was used for triune or Godhead. But the three persons existing as one, one being, is the triune God, the Godhead. One of the other things that causes us to be encouraged and able to, to look to God with great joy and great hope and a great sense of being able to be truly valued by God is the fact that the three persons of the Godhead model to us the reality of God's love of one person to another. And so, the three persons of the Godhead are distinct. They are distinctly different. There's a, um, a, an image that was used around the, the, the 13th century to communicate in some way the dynamics of the triune relationship. So, top left, pater equals the father, non est filius, is not the son, that's why that's in red. The son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the father. And yet the father is God, the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now you have to, in order to begin to, 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 to lay hold of this truth, we think about people, we think about our entire person, we think about individuals, and then to say that there are three persons but one God is almost as if to say, well, there are three people in one body. We kind of, we try and, let's not think about it in material terms. God is the supreme being. Not a human being, animal being, but God being. And there are three persons who are God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important that we appreciate that they are distinct and they are different and yet one. Because there are some 
heresies. This isn't one of the ones that I believe. But there are some heresies that say, well, there is only one person. And this one person expresses himself in different ways at different times. At one point, he's he's the father. But then, as he is manifest in human form, he's the son. But it's the same person. And then, when he's um, at at work in the, the life of the church, it's the Holy Spirit. That's actually a heresy, according to Scripture. Because we understand that these three persons are distinct. So when John says in verse 1, the word was with God, eternally existing side by side, you can only understand that to be two persons. It's not the word was with God at the point when he decided to just switch his appearance. No. God the Father, God the Son, eternally existing side by side. And so what is known as modalism, God taking on different modes, or what's known as Unitarian, or oneness, some of you begin to get from oneness, um, oneness Pentecostals, uh, there are other branches of oneness, but this kind of sense of there is only one Christian God, but he takes on different phases or appearances at different, that's a heresy. And so, the three persons are distinct. And in that eternal relationship of love, the eternal relationship of seeking the other, so the Father seeks to glorify the Son at his baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the resurrection of Lazarus, this is my beloved son, hear ye him, and I will glorify him. The son seeking to glorify the father, and yet the spirit seeking to glorify the son. And this dynamic relationship of love shared is such that we recognize that God appreciates the distinction of individual persons. That means God cares about you personally. God is interested in you personally. God isn't just this being who is far removed from life, from people, who doesn't care, who has nothing to do with, as some would say, it's known as deism. God is like the great watchmaker who just created the world, wound it up like a watch, and left its natural processes to get on with it. This is not the picture of God that we see in the triune. God that has revealed himself. To add to that, we see John in verse 1 uses the term logos, where he says, in the beginning was the word. So that word, word, is logos. And this is a term that was common to both Jews and Greeks. In Greek philosophy, they understood the logos to be the divine reason, and they had different views of the logos, but the divine reason through which all things were created They understood the Logos to be agents of God. So God was this far removed God. And the Logos was an agent of God through which he worked. And yet, the term Logos was also used among the Jews. As they translated the Old Testament into Greek. We see the word logos used numerous times. So in the prophetic formula, they would say, 
And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The logos of the Lord came to Isaiah. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. And yet we recognize this to be a person. And this person to be the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So right here, we see that there is a revelation of the nature of God, the triune nature of God. A revelation that says God is personal, not just a force or a power. And so another heresy that is quite common is that the Holy Spirit isn't anything other than the power or the force or the energy of God. He is a person. And he is referred to throughout scripture as a person. As we'll see later on in this chapter. In verse 33 of John chapter 1. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, this is John the Baptist speaking, with water said to me, he whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so we see within just a few verses the introduction of the third person of the Trinity. So God, the self-existent one, he has stepped into creation in the person of his eternal son. He is not confined to his creation, as some would say, so if creation dies, then God dies. Pantheism is a, a historic belief which has different echoes today. I don't know if any of you ever saw the film Lucy. I would have asked for my money back if I hadn't watched the whole thing. And in that film, you see this kind of pantheistic notion of this individual who basically becomes one with all the universe and ascends to a godlike status. That's pantheism. That says that God is in everything. The huge, there's, there's huge problems with that. If God is in everything, then surely he is flawed with all of the problems that everything has, because everything has problems. What kind of God is that to serve? When everything dies, then there's the end of God. No. God is sovereign. God is great. He is transcendent. He is distinct from his creation. And yet, he made all things and is intricately involved with all that he has made. And yet, not dependent on anything that he has made. We serve a great God and a great King, Jesus Christ. He through whom all things were made. And as John writes this gospel, he starts at the crucial point because if we don't get this, as we go through the gospel, we're not going to get the rest of it. When Jesus stands up in John 10 and says, I and the Father are one, we're going to miss that. When Jesus says to, to Philip in John um, 14, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, we're not gonna, we're, it's just going to go over our heads and we're, gonna, we're not even going to care. Because we don't understand the fundamental truth that John starts the gospel with. God is one being, eternally existing in three persons, co-equal there's, a, there's an old school word they used to use consubstantial consubstantial it sounds substantial doesn't it? and it means of the same substance 
You can't say made of the same stuff as we might do in modern vernacular because God obviously hasn't been made. But he's of the same substance, Father, Son, and Spirit. Whatever, in essence, the Father consists of, the Son consists of in his divinity. And likewise does the Spirit. And so when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, that's not a contradiction. That's not modalism. That's Jesus Jesus recognizing that he is a partaker of the divine nature, that he is God. And as we get there, you'll see that they took up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. Throughout civilization, and throughout the history of civilizations, people have had different concepts of God. And often within those thoughts of God, there was this consideration that the gods would come down among men. And so you see that in Greek mythology and Greek Roman mythology and they talk about Zeus and Hercules and Zeus um, cohabiting with a, a, a human and Hercules being born and he is the son of the gods. It's not a surprise. You know, I hear people talk about, you know, the Gilgamesh epics. You guys follow the Bible, but you're not black enough. You should follow the Gilgamesh epics. Yeah. Because even in there, there was talk of this, this Jesus person, how many thousands of years before he came. And I'm like, so what? God prophesied in the garden at the beginning that he would send his offspring to destroy the work of the devil. And that truth has resonated from that point throughout generations, throughout civilization and taken on its different forms. The devil distorting those things. So it's no wonder that they had this expectation and they had these legends within their civilizations and within their cultures. It's no wonder. Because God started the rumor. God himself started the rumor. And it was actually in his grace and mercy that he allowed these legends and these rumors to spread. Because what it done was it prepared people for the coming of the Messiah. It created an anticipation. And here we see John reporting the fulfillment of that anticipation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so as you go about your business this week, Put your confidence in the God who has revealed himself in Christ. That he is great. That he is eternal. That he is fulfilled in and of himself. That he is is concerned. That he does care about you as an individual. In that, The Son is concerned for the Father, and the Father for the Son, and the Spirit for the Son, and the Son for the Spirit, etc. And know that this eternal God has granted great and precious promises by His grace, by His free sovereign choice to save. And only He can save because there is no other God. Trust him. Rejoice in him. Receive his love in Christ. Let's leave it there. And um, we'll pick up from there next week. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your faithfulness.
thank you for the way in which you have revealed yourself. We are finite and limited in our capacity to understand. We don't know what it means to be self-existent. We don't know what it means to be outside of time, to be outside of the confines of beginnings and ends. And yet, Lord, we're so grateful that you are God. And just as the Apostle John said in his letter, his first letter, you are love. And that love isn't a, a needy, vulnerable, insecure love. But it's a generous and gracious and abundant love revealed in your son. And so I, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be anchored in you. To have a right understanding of who you are and not just who people say you are not just who we think you are but who you are as you have re revealed yourself in the pages of scripture have your way in us and through us for your glory eternal God Amen To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.